0: This is Fostering Conversations with Utah Foster Care, where we have insightful conversations about parenting for bio, foster, adoptive, or blended families to better understand the experiences we all face as families. A warm welcome to everyone out there as we record this for the month where we celebrate love. And of course, that means February. I'm Deborah Lindner, along with Liz Rivera. And Liz, we're not having a conversation about love today. We're talking about attachment, which is different and, in my mind, a little more important.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating because I think the two of them do get uh, linked together quite often, and yet they each have their own distinct qualities, although often they do exist at the same time. In the context of foster care and children and parents,
0: Give me your definition of what is attachment.
1: so generally when we talk about attachment um, in pre-service, which is the initial training for foster parents or in- service, which is a deeper dive, we generally really focus on the idea of felt security and then emotional regulation and how the parents can help but with both of those things and give them hopefully very doable interventions that actually lead to uh, more secure attachments and we talk about these things. Really, almost from a lay perspective, we've most trainers, Utah Foster Care, have done a lot of reading and going to conferences and stuff about attachment, but it's something that we, it's part of what we do. And so, our guest today, this is all he does. He just does, does attachment. That's his work. That's his life's work. And so, we're really excited to have Dr. Lee Raby join us today. Some of you out there listening may recognize Dr. Raby's name. He was a presenter for us at our symposium that was done during the pandemic year, was totally online. And Dr. Raby graciously joined us and he spent um, about an hour with us really doing a deep dive into attachment. And he's graciously joined us again today. He's an associate professor at the University of Utah in the Department of Psychology. Welcome, Dr. Raby.
2: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you today.
1: So we're gonna just start off with the most simple question, the question that Deborah asked me, what is attachment? What are the basics of attachment? So that elevator pitch.
2: Sure. Yeah. And I really appreciated your sort of distinction between sort of love and attachment, that love is a complicated and multifaceted uh, phenomenon and attachment is a piece of that, but not the totality of love. I think to understand attachment, we have to start with recognizing an, an obvious fact, if anyone's ever been around young children, which is that they are dependent on the care of someone older in order to survive. Biologists refer to this as uh, being an altricial species. And this is just referring to the obvious fact that uh, human newborns cannot walk. They cannot obtain food on their own. They're even very poor at uh, regulating their own temperature. So they need these supports and resources to be provided to them by someone else. And this is commonly the biological parents, but it doesn't have to be. This is when it's a matter of life or death. Infants will take whoever will provide these things for them. And infants come into the world ready to or biased and equipped to start eliciting this kind of care from people. One of the first things they do when they enter the world is cry. That serves a couple different functions, but one of them is to elicit care from the adults, often the biological parents, biological mother that are in their environment. And we refer to this as the attachment system and these attachment signals, and they're trying to elicit care from people. Initially, all of these signals are indiscriminate. Newborns do not care if it's the biological mother, father, nurse uh stranger in the hallway, it doesn't matter because again, this is a matter of life or death. They're not going to be picky and choosy at that point. And then starting around like three to six months and definitely around six to nine months, infants start to recognize, oh, there seems to be a small number of people who tend to respond to these cues. When I cry out, when I'm signaling, I need something. One, two, maybe three people tend to be the ones that are most commonly coming. And then the children start to direct their cues to that person or those people. And when they start doing that, that's reflecting an understanding of, oh, you're the person who's going to keep me sick. You're the person who's going to provide that sort of security for me. And when that sort of recognition happens, that's when we refer to that as an attachment has now formed. It's a special relationship with a, a special person. But it takes time to develop. It's not something they are doing initially. It's a more generalized behavioral system that sort of over time starts to become more targeted in around six to nine months as when those attachments form.
0: And we also call that time period the time of stranger danger when they don't want to be just handed off to any old person. And that is totally normal. So we're talking about newborns. Tell us how this relates to a child in foster care who has gone through neglect and abuse either as an infant or even as an older child, which is normally when they come into foster care.
2: Yeah. So the first thing I think there is to recognize that these children did form attachments to their original caregivers. So children will form attachments even to caregivers who maltreat them and who neglect them or even abuse them and cause harm to them. And again, this comes back to it's life or death. And if that's all that the world has provided for you, it's better than nothing, because with nothing you won't survive. And children will form attachments to parents who have maltreated them. However, those attachments are not going to be secure and Liz in the opening definition of attachment, you you reference that feeling of felt security. And so children will go to their maltreating caregivers in an attempt to get that feeling, but that feeling likely will not ever quite be satisfied um, because it's this, I don't know in this moment what I might get from you. Or maybe I do know what I'm going to get from you, and it's not going to be what I need. And so they often have formed insecure or in a particular form of insecure attachment is called a disorganized attachment in which children are not just not feeling secure but they're actually feeling afraid in their relationship and so the person who's supposed to be they're supposed to be turning to for meeting and controlling and regulating feelings of fear is actually the source of the fear for them and so that puts young children in a very unfortunate place
0: and how would this present itself in a home where a child has just come into and there's foster parents.
2: Yes. So when they are then removed from this, the young children don't necessarily go, oh, new person, new expectations. They carry those in. And one one of my mentors used to say, at a very basic level, children will expect that what will happen is what has already happened. And so they will carry in those same expectations, even in with new relationships.
1: I just remember from when you did the presentation for us, you used the analogy of a chair. And if yeah. every time you sat in a chair it collapsed, that's going to predict that you're going to be afraid to sit in chairs.
2: Yes, if you imagine that attachment being like a chair and and sitting in it, and if a maltreating caregiver would be something like, not just a like a chair maybe with a, a broken leg or actually maybe it's a chair that has splinters in it or will harm you um, if you don't sit in it in the right way or you never know is it, was right. And that eventually, right, a new chair enters the world. Oh, that one was broken. Here we go, here's a new chair, tries this one. They're not necessarily just gonna run over to it and jump in it like, oh, this one's, they're gonna sit cautiously. I don't know if I can trust this. And it's gonna take time. And so that's the other utility of the chair analogy is it implies that they will carry these expectations in, but it doesn't mean these expectations are necessarily immutable or unchangeable. It's just going to take time, repetition on top of repetition. No, you can sit here. No, this is safe. I am here for you. I am not going to be what you experience. So then. Age of the child is going to matter a lot. How uh, age at which they were entering foster care is going to matter a lot. What were the experiences? So all of that nuance about exactly how long and how severe, how pervasive, how many caregivers was it, all of that is going to be influential in helping to understand how long is this going to take to unlearn and start to develop new kinds of attachments with the new foster parents.
0: So I'm thinking about kids' behaviors and how many times I've thought my child is behaving poorly. He was adopted from India. And so there's definitely some trauma there. But help foster parents who may not be familiar with attachment. And this goes for both Liz and Dr. Raby. But what are some of the behaviors that kids demonstrate?
2: I can speak to it from a sort of academic research perspective. What it is we look for in terms of signs of the attachment relationship, not being as secure as it could. And I'd be really interested Liz also here from on the ground perspective. In the labs, it's actually easier to maybe start with, what are the signs of a secure attachment? And that would be that when they're distressed, and so this would be hurt, scared, sad, these feelings of, I'm basically, I don't know how I'm feeling right now about the world and my place in it, that their knee-jerk response is, I'm going to go to my parent with this. I'm going to seek comfort and security and safety there. And I'm going to seek clarity and understanding. I mean, They don't always say this, depending again on the age of the child, but you can see something scary happens. And within a millisecond, they turn around and run towards the parent and it's this, I'm going to you for my protection. And to use sort of the jargon of academia, we, we refer to that as the safe haven function of attachment. This I'm seeking you as a haven, as, as a den, as a place of safety when that's achieved, and this is sometimes the, the paradox of secure attachment, that when that's actually achieved, the child doesn't just stay there forever. That they're like, okay, I'm good. I know what to go do other things. I want to go explore. I want to go play. I want to go build these blocks. I want to go play with friends, depending again on the age of the child. I'm going to go explore. I'm going to go learn. Um, And so then they leave the parent and they'll move out. So sometimes people will see a child that's constantly needing reassurance and think, oh, that's security. And it's like, So that's a sign of insecurity. That's a sign that this child is unwilling to move away from the parent because there's some feeling of if I move away, if you're going to be there for me. And we've referred to that as the secure base function that you are now serving as a base, like a if you're a hiker, like a base camp that allows the child then to go out and explore and learn because they know I can come back to you. So that's what security looks like. And so that can give you all the signs of the myriad of ways in which insecurity or or, uh, problematic forms of attachment might be apparent, not seeking the parent when they're distressed or scared and going off and trying to manage it themselves, going to the parent, but not accepting their care, fighting them, getting angry with them, not being inconsolable even. And then that is a very frustrating place. for a parent to be anxious. I'm trying to comfort you, but yet you don't want it. And then I put you down and you're screaming at me or even running away from the parent, right? That the parent, that they think the parent is a source of fear, is a a place that not just that, not just that they don't feel comfortable going to them with their needs, but actually they're frightened by them. So those would be some of the most common ways that we might see an insecure attachment in, in children.
1: And that's often what we talk about too. I'm, I'm actually right in the middle of teaching a circle of security series. And so exactly that, it's that kid who's a, who can go out and that kid who can come back. And when we see um, any kind of disruption in that ability to seek care or to explore the world, that often indicates a less secure. And then often that disorganized shows up as that, the fear of yeah. the caregiver and how they ma- might manage that fear, which sometimes can look like, we always talk about in the terms of fight and flight, freeze, tend and befriend those different ways that may, that fear may show up. One thing I want to talk about a little bit too, is I almost want to rewind a little bit in talking about the child with the uh, insecure or even disorganized attachment. Um, one, one thing we try to talk to parents about is that when we're talking about insecure or even disorganized attachments, they're still attachments and disrupting those attachments is still a big deal. So even though they may be going from something insecure to hopefully secure, we still want to recognize that that's going to be a loss, a trauma even to, to disrupt that attachment and why we focus so much on reunification, even getting a child back with a parent that maybe that's attachment isn't completely secure.
2: Yeah, I, I appreciate you coming back to that because um, I in some of my comments, I was implying, oh, children will form an attachment to their foster parents and they do, but not on day one. Um, and so there actually is a period of where the child, after they've been removed from the home and placed into some kind of foster care situation in which they are attachment figure less, Um, the attachments that they had formed, even if disorganized, even if secure, they were their attachments. That was the place that they felt some level of security and safety in, even if it not, maybe incomplete, but something that is now been removed from them. And there will be a period of confusion, mourning for the child as they start to grieve the, the loss of that. And this is especially salient for very young children where you can't have conversations with them or, oh, you're going, there's going to be some visitation or you're going to see them next week or something, right? When we're talking very young children, they don't understand what's happening. All they know is I've been removed from everything I've known from you know my whole life. I'm being placed in a new thing. I don't know what this is. I don't know if I'm safe here. And and that can put the child in a very confusing place. Now, children do tend to form attachments to these alternate caregivers, um, foster parents, et cetera, within a few months. But a few months in the life of a young child is still a very long time. And so even the separation itself, even if on the whole is going to lead to more safety, potentially more security in the long run for the child, it is, you can think of it kind of like doing surgery, right? You still do have to cut into the body to do something that's going to be helpful, but that hurts. And so it's the same kind of thing. Like this is, it is a necessary harm, but it is something that is going to be emotionally challenging for a child. And I think it is very helpful for foster parents to recognize that.
0: Do I, as a parent, need to be aware of my, maybe some of my own attachment styles? For instance, if I came from a family where, oh, we gave hugs, we were very touchy, but some children resist being hugged. They've just never had that and they don't know how to handle it. And maybe you, as a parent, sit next to them. What is that called, Liz? When you're sitting close, but you're not maybe touching them. Like being parallel. Yes. Would-
2: yes, absolutely. So the idea that parents themselves are carrying in their own expectations, uh, hopes for their child. That's the case among biologically intact families that we all carry in. This is what it was like for me when I was a kid. And either want to simulate that or correct that. And we try to create that environment with your child. You know, I have two children and so they're very different in terms of what their attachment needs are and how they want those met. And all the more, right, when we're talking about a foster care situation where this child has had experiences that were outside your control. And sometimes you don't even know the totality of what those were. And yes, being aware, not just of what the things we've been talking about of what's going on with the child. It's psychologically, emotionally, as they're going through this process of transitioning into a foster care and forming new relationships, but also being aware of what are my hopes and what are my expectations and what do I think is normal and healthy? And am I maybe imposing some things onto this child and trying to get some needs met for this child that are really not for that child to be meeting? I'm As we're talking, I'm remembering a conversation actually I had with a, a foster care worker at one point where she was talking about how sometimes foster parents would be a little, a little pushy at the initial sort of greeting of the child and wanting the hugs and being a little overly effusive in the demonstrations of affection. And this was, could be off putting to a child. It's like, I don't know you. I don't want this. And she said one of the things that she found most effective was when parents would just put out a plate of warm cookies and just be like, it's this very, sort of subtle sign of welcome, but take it at your leisure, right? We're here for you. This is a calm, safe place. And we'll meet you when you're ready and willing to do that. But um, in the meantime, maybe just have a cookie. Yeah. I
1: love that. I think that's always a good solution to almost everything <laughs> is have a dice form cookie. I think that's great. So I'm still th- I'm thinking still about the original attachment figure and these new attachment figures. And with the goal of foster care being reunification, how does a child navigate that? So they have maybe this attachment experience with this first caregiver, which maybe was less than secure, often is. And now they have this new caregiver who hopefully they've established some secure attachment with. How does a child navigate multiple attachment relationships? And how does the foster parent support? Like that's what foster parents talk about that being very heartbreaking is seeing this child who's securely attached to them have to almost break that attachment to try to reattach to their first caregiver. Seems like a lot to ask of kids.
2: It is. Yeah, it it is. So to answer your question, I have to extrapolate beyond a lot of the data we have. And that's because as researchers, we have tended to focus mostly on single attachments, or if we have looked at multiple attachments, it tends to be within two parent, biologically intact families. So one with mom, one with dad. And although children do form distinct attachments, even in those settings, mom and dad tend to parent similarly, and therefore they tend to have similar attachments. It's not nearly as stark of a contrast as what you're pointing out. So I want to be clear, and this is just my bias as an academic, that I'm going beyond available data here and a little bit of, I'm going to pull some of the threads of data we do have to try and, I think, fill in the gaps and speak to what you're talking about. But you're absolutely right. So children will form multiple attachments. They initially start with one, maybe two, but they will start to form networks of attachments. This is true even in outside of foster care, and so within foster care, they'll do that too. And they'll have here's the expectations I have of figure one, and here's the expectations I have of figure two, and going back and forth when there are extra, uh, differences is a tricky thing to put a child in. And it's not going to be something that children do seamlessly in the sense that when they have spent maybe time with their original parents, maybe they're coming back to their foster parent, you'll see some carryover, you'll see some residual sort of behaviors, some same emotions, because they're not just going to click in and click out the same way. And that can be, you know, either frustrating or just very disheartening for a foster parent to go through to, to see their child that they're caring for doing that. So you're right. It is very challenging for children. They are capable of forming different attachments. And one of the things we have seen is that even if they continue to have an insecure, disorganized attachment with their original parents, the secure attachment that they have formed, hopefully in the context of foster care will be advantageous for them as they move into, as they continue to grow and develop that this understanding that at least there was one, maybe two people that I had a secure attachment with, that they know that they exist. I, I know that I can form a secure attachments with people, that there will be people there for me. That doesn't entirely erase the pain and hardship of the earlier experiences, but it does help buffer it.
1: Wonderful.
0: And before we start to wrap up, as far as Utah foster care goes, there's ongoing education about how to handle this and how important it is. So what are some resources that are available to foster parents?
1: So we do some in-service classes, TBRI, which a lot of our foster parents have been through. Circle of Security is one that, that I personally adore. We are also starting a new series called the Teen Core Series which is going to be focused more on teens and attachment challenges and those kinds of things with older kids. Because I think sometimes we talk a lot about little kids because that's where it's really obvious, but how to establish those kind of relationships with teens. But I'd love to hear from you, Dr. Raby. You're talking right now directly to foster parents. What are the most important things that you would encourage them to focus on?
2: I think to be really explicit about some of the things we've been dancing around is just the importance of consistently and appropriately meeting the child's attachment needs and being willing and able to be a source of security and safety for them and seeing sometimes beneath the difficult, challenging behaviors to like, what's the emotion underneath that is you're scared. And the way you're enacting that is you're throwing a tantrum and I'm going to sit with you through this, because what I want you to know is that you can feel this with me. I'm not going to let you punch me in the face. I'm not going to let you put a hole in the wall. But I'm still with you. I'm still gonna meet those needs. And with that, of just being aware of that, there's a natural tendency to respond in kind. And so we were talking about how children, if they've formed a attachment, they may not go to a parent with their needs, or when they do, they tend to fight it. And there's a tendency to respond in kind of that's oh, the child doesn't seem that distressed. They they just go to their room. That seems what they need. And inadvertently we may be perpetuating you can't come to me. And now that it's a fine balance because I, I was also saying you can go too far and be overly pushy with them when they're not ready. And so it it is a trial and error. I'm going to step forward, see how this goes, but um, not allowing the child to just continue to behave like in these insecure ways without there at least being the, I just want you to know that I'm not going to continue to behave in a way or respond in a way that's reinforcing of that or uh, perpetuating it, that I am going to be willing to be sensitive and meet those needs if you're feeling comfortable to bring them to me.
0: Very good advice. Thank you. Thank you, Bo. Dr. Lee Raby from the University of Utah Psychology, who is an expert in research on attachment. And Liz Rivera, our director of education for Utah Foster Care, who I would say in a different way is an expert on attachment, like all of our educators are at Utah Foster Care. And if you're a foster parent or thinking about being a foster parent, once again, we at Utah Foster Care were there to support you. There are ongoing classes that Liz and her staff offer. I also want to thank our producer, Marshall Shear Davis behind the scenes, but always there to support us. Remember, you don't need to know everything to become a foster parent. You just need to be willing to learn, like we have today. For details on foster parenting and so many other ways you can get involved, I recommend you go to utahfostercare.org. I'm Deborah Lindner. This has been Fostering Conversations with Utah Foster Care. Thank you for joining us. For more information, go to utahfostercare.org. We'll see you next time.